0: Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington.
1: And without further ado, we are ready for today's keynote interview. I'm super excited to be speaking with Yashu, head of data science at LinkedIn. Uh, Let's get ya up and jump right into the interview.
2: Good morning. Ah, Good morning. Good morning,
1: everyone. I am super excited to have this opportunity to chat with you. Thank you for joining us and for LinkedIn. LinkedIn has been a huge supporter of the podcast over the years, and uh, we're very appreciative of that.
2: Thank you for inviting me, and I know Twainwall for many years as well. I know that a lot of folks from my team actually has been showing up on your podcast, so it's a great honor to to join you here today.
1: Awesome, awesome. So let's jump right in. I, I think this interview is going to be particularly interesting because earlier in your career, you were on the platform and infrastructure side of things, the topic that we're focused on here but now you're the head of a large data science team. Tell us a little bit about your background and your journey.
2: Sure, maybe I'll go a little further back uh, in my journey. <laughs> and <laughs> I started out with, uh, you know, I, many years ago that I, I got my uh, PhD in statistics um, from Stanford. So I, in during my time there, uh, I certainly, for those of you who may be familiar with the statistics PhD program, uh, it's, it's quite theoretical uh, in general, uh, but uh, we we also, Stanford also has a very strong track in the applied approach onto statistical problems too. So um, that's where I essentially spent a lot of my researching uh, on uh, sort of the uh, how do we apply you know statistical modeling to solve some of the real world problems and did my thesis in semi-supervised learning on um, graphs. Back then, semi-supervised learning wasn't that popular <laughs> relative <laughs> to today. And the, the reason I'm sharing that is also because, you know, if I'm thinking about my passion and what I like to do in my uh, career, it's always about, even though that I was doing platform in my earlier in my career, like it's always this uh, internal drive of wanting to solve some real problems. Fast forward to my Time I, I, in, I went into industry and for my PhD days, um, worked at Microsoft for a few years and then joined LinkedIn. And I've been at LinkedIn for about uh, eight years now. It's kind of crazy how long, how fast <laughs> the time flies. In my early days, both when I was at Microsoft and at LinkedIn, I was uh, an individual contributor, very much focusing on building. Um, platforms and enable tooling and to solve um, to enable many other folks in the company to be able to utilize and either that'll be uh, and and you know directly applying it in the business and the products that they're in like to to kind of creating that leverage across the board. And that's what I spent most of my I almost say like most of my career on so far. And about three, uh, four years ago that was when I decided that I I wanted to learn how to manage a team. And I was very fortunate uh to be supported in that a career journey and transformation by my boss uh, who is the chief data officer at Ding, and also obviously many many other leadership at LinkedIn. Ding. So so um yeah, so then I, I stepped into more on um, I guess the what you call application side of the world of uh, but certainly still very much ver- working very closely with the folks who are building the platforms and maybe a little bit more at the customer side, but also at the same time, I do have folks on my team who are working hand in hand with the platform teams and from the science angle to make sure that we have the right methodology, we have the right approach and on how our platforms are enabling and solving, you know, the the problems that we see.
1: Awesome. Awesome. Speaking of those problems, uh, I suspect everyone who is watching us is familiar with LinkedIn and perhaps even some of the ways that LinkedIn uses machine learning, especially if they've caught some of our previous interviews with LinkedIn folks. But what are the specific types of problems that your teams are focused on?
2: So, uh, for those of you who are, m- 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 I'm glad that a lot of you are f- familiar with LinkedIn, uh, but maybe not everyone is familiar with uh, how LinkedIn is organized. So, my team is the global central data science team. So, what that means is, uh, you know, there there is really only one data science team at LinkedIn, like, and and but the way that we operate is that we actually work very closely with various different functions and areas across the company, right? So you know if you think about a company has various functions that's either you know deliver and develop product and then the folks can think about and like you know if you use linkedin's app or if you go to linkedin.com on the web that's what our product is right so so i have folks uh, in the team who is working embedded uh, with various different areas of a product either that is feed that is messaging that is search that is jobs um and careers, you know, all these aspects uh, of, of our product. I also have folks who are very closely working with our go-to market teams, and this is particularly our marketing teams, our sales team, thinking about how we can use machine learning, statistics to actually optimize our go-to market motion as well. A simple example would be as marketing team, like who should they target? Who how should they optimally spend their marketing money, right? As our sales team, which are the customers that our sales team should really talk to and, and like which customers are more likely to churn so that they can actually engage with them more closely, right? So there's a lot of uh, things that we do. And, and then on top of it, we, we also work on with infrastructure teams too, right? Thinking about if you have a lot of Hadoop jobs, how do you optimally schedule those jobs such that you can, you can avoid the, the peak time and you can optimally utilizing your offline uh, resources, uh, both in terms of memory and storage, right? So, so there is just um, an a array of problems that the team solves. Um, and, and then go, going to what I mentioned earlier is this, uh, I also have folks who are focusing on more, more horizontally, again, thinking about enabling, right? So uh, folks who are focusing on developing experimentation, Um, methodology, folks who are focusing on differential privacy that we can chat more later as well, like folks who are more focusing on anomaly detection, algorithms, forecasting, like, you know, things that is more horizontally enabling various different applications uh, that is happening, um, again, in the various different areas that I mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. Mm
1: -hmm. You mentioned that your team is centralized, but uh, also embedded you know, this is a, uh, the organization as a topic that's come up quite a bit uh, at the conference and every organization kind of finds a different place uh, on, on the spectrum. But often I see that at a certain level of size or scale of a data science team, it tends more towards a distributed model because, you know, the different businesses want to have their own data science resources Tell us about the choice to maintain the centralized embedded model and, you know, what works there, what doesn't work and, and how you think about that generally.
2: Uh, that's a great question. And you're, you're spot on. Uh, and, and, you know, you know, if you only have five data scientists that and it's certainly uh, the, the, the right decision is to centralize them because you, you actually are able to offer them a career growth. You offer them a peer group that they can talk with and all of that. And, you know, when the team gets really, really big, uh, I know that there are certain companies out there that has like maybe, I don't know, like close to a thousand data scientists across the company. I I think then you definitely get into a situation where you have enough mass within each of the business unit that you can have maybe not a global centralized data science team, but you kind of have the local sort of center of excellence within different units. So at LinkedIn, we uh we we have we have we're somewhere in between, right? In the sense that we my team is about three hundred three hundred fifty 350 people. So so sizable, uh, but but also at the same time, this goes into you know my experience on, on both the platform side and also the application side. Is if you think about the the benefit of having a team that is in the central organization, the benefit is the leverage, right? It's mm-hmm. that you you can Put like, for example, I can put my way behind what are the right tooling that we should be building for all data scientists. So where my team is sitting, we have a, because we have a broad view across all different applications, we understand together collectively what are the needs that we have from both the, uh, the algorithm standpoint, methodology standpoint, from, from the platform tooling standpoint to be able to make every data scientist to be more successful. Right, so you kind of have to like it, it, like establish. You have a you know this this allows us to establish that it, it, that leverage across. But you can say on the other hand, the 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 downside of having a central team is the potential danger of you have this central team think that they are the center of excellence, sit in the corner, <laughs> not really actually try to figure out what are the problems that's worth solving. Right, like think about this. Right, I can come up with the best algorithm, the best approach, but you know, I'm solving. I could be solving the wrong problem. Then what's the use of that in a company? Right, like if you are solving the wrong problem, I actually think the LinkedIn model works really well in the way that my uh, I, have, I have I have my team organized in the way that they are kind of like in their unit, and then they work very much embedded. Uh, with each of the product area or the business area they're working at, right? So so they pretty much, you can think about them as in one foot in the uh, domain area they're working at and one foot with the rest of the data science teams. So they are solving problems that is really business critical. But also at the same time, they get enjoying the benefit of that knowledge sharing, that leverage, and, and like sort of that, that strategic approach in how we are solving all these applications problems as well.
1: Mm-hmm. Having been on both sides of the, the fence relative to platforms and infrastructure and application side of things, what do you think makes for a successful working model between those two different teams? Where, where do you draw the line between one and two? It sounds like you have some horizontal capability within your team, and how do you generally think of that aspect of organizing your team's work?
2: that's That's a, such a great question. Um, so first of all, I want to say that I've seen many failures in that working model. like <laughs> I, I, not, not, not you know not not as in like oh, this is disastrous and like you know the whole company failed because of that. but you can definitely even even today, I still see in pockets of uh, examples that I think, made that working model not working, right? So so let me kind of be explicit. So the, the, the way that I've seen on both sides of the aisle is folks on the application side, they complain about problems, right? They're like, okay, this is not working. It's not able to, you know, allow me to do X, Y, Z, right? And they kind of then throw that problem over the wall to the platform team. And the platform team, like catch it, they either... Are just doing exactly what the the applications team tell them to do, right? For example, I need you to build it in this way so that I can like I can use it, right? Like so, they either are taking orders from the application team and not thinking about is that the right architecture? Is this only solving your problem? Are there things down the road that this makes this not like a long term solution, right? They, they either do that. Or they're like, "Who are you to talk to me? I'm gonna take orders from you, right? Like I'm gonna just do my thing because that's what I care about the most, right?" So, 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 so I've seen those two extreme examples play out in reality. E- and even
1: then, even the ahead. way you're describing it sounds like a delicate balance. Like you want some pushback, but not you know, neither are these extremes.
2: Absolutely, absolutely. So, so the the part that I always uh, I, I like I'm gonna quote on. Um, one of the sort of legendary engineering leaders at LinkedIn that he, he used to say, like, do you want to be part of the problem or do you want to be part of the solution? And the thing is that a lot of times the application team think that it's the platform's job to build the solution and it's the platform's job to make them successful in using those tools and, and the capabilities. And, and the thing is that it has to be very much hand in hand. So let me kind of break it down, right? Like, you know, you think about there's various different stages as you are building a, building a platform. And in, the, in day one, like as, as you're building that capability, is to have accountability on both sides, right? I would always go to my team and say, hey, you know what? It's not just the platform's job to deliver the feature you need. If the feature is ended up delivered and you're like, you know what? That's not the right feature that's going to solve my problem because I have all, all the other problems. I'm not going to be able to use that platform. I said, Hey, you know what? It's as much of your responsibility as, as much as their responsibility as it is yours. Right. So I'm going to hold both of you <laughs> accountable to make this successful. So I think from day one, that just really forces the teams to, to think about it together as they have the same goal, the same success. Right. Like that, that both sides have. And then once this um, is sort of maybe the, a, a, a MVP is built and you get into this sort of adoption phase, right? This is, you know, a lot of times the platform team has these challenges. They build something they think it's amazing. The world's wonderful, like the most, the most wonderful thing in the world. And then the folks are like, you know, I've got something here that kind of worked for me. Why would I want it to like migrate all my approach to yours? But right? I have to, like people just have that intrinsically, Unwillingness to go move into something new, even though that's a new thing long term may be beneficial for them. So, the way that I also see that's worked really well is having this model that I like to call champion model. Uh, so, so, let's say, for example, you build a platform and you have to convince 10 other teams to use it, right? Mm-hmm. Don't say, hey, like oh, all of you guys come and use my thing but start with a couple of them who are already leaning in, right? They are like already showed showed interest. They already are like, you know what? Like I'm actually excited about this thing. So get them on board first, Mm -hmm. right? Because they are the customers who are more likely to be telling you what's going wrong and they're not going to abandon you right before, like, you know, just because there is a simple bug that you have in your system. So work with them to address really their need and also allows your platform Resources to be able to focus on making them happy, so once you have solved once you have get team A fully onboarded and happy using your platform, you go to B, team B, you go to team C, and once you have like I don't know four out of the ten teams onboarded and they started to demonstrate the value of using your platform, boom, you know what the rest of the six teams will just fall in line. Um, so I think again the, in the adoption phase there is also that sort of approach and that needs to be think very carefully as well. And I would say then the last phase, you know, we talk about during the building phase, during the adoption phase, and then in the mature phase, right? So let's say you've already got a platform that is running, everybody's using it, and obviously we all know that you have to continuously evolving and building on top of it, right? Like And, and then like just, just creating that holistic culture that like the application team, they should be like demand they should demand the platform teams not as in like and again another mistake that i've seen uh, people make is like oh you know the platform is not able to solve my problem so i'm going to build myself something else <laughs> <laughs> and i think engineers this is this is engineers like like you know it's not the greatest unless it's built by me right like i think this is uh, <laughs> in general but we all have is like you know mine is the greatest uh, So creating that culture on the application side to really demand the platform uh, to to be able to solve the problems with them. Uh, So I think that's one. And also on the application side, it's having this model, what we call like SME, right? Like the subject matter experts. Uh, So thinking about the individuals who are expert at using those platforms and they become sort of this local champion for platforms in their team. Right? So imagine that you build a, a platform that uh, in a team of 20 people, if you have one person who is an expert of using it, then the other individuals on your team can go to that person to learn how to use it. At the same time, if they have an official request, it's actually much easier to go through that person, the SME, because the SME understands the platform capability. So they're not just going to ask any random feature. right? They're going to ask feature that really matters uh, mm-hmm. to the team. Right. So, so that like, you know, they also, the platform is also much easier for them to take those feature asks and, and then work with the SME to figure out what's the right solution and um, to evolve the platform. So, so I think, you know, I, I said a lot, but I, I, I do think it's, it's, it really takes both uh, sides of the coin to make this happen really well. And one last thing I would say is also just from architecture standpoint, like from platform architecture standpoint. Always think about how to build a platform in an extensive way, extensible way. You want it to democratize as much as you can. Like, you know, if you have a platform, a team of 10 that's building this tool, like you have 500 people who are using it. And think about how you can give them, those 500 people, a chance to contribute to your platform. The more that you can design your architecture in that way, the better it gets.
1: What what are some ways that the platforms at LinkedIn support this?
2: Oh, we we actually, uh, I want to say many of our platforms do that. Like, I know that you are quite familiar with our ProMail and like the, the uh, platform. And you can actually uh, build your modules on top of it. You can, uh, like like a simple example is uh, my team actually developed this model, like explainability capability. And then so they, they used it in their application. That went really well. And they just kind of build it as an extensive module on the platform so other people who wanted to use it, they can use it too. Right. Mm -hmm. Another example is our we have a platform for anomaly detection uh, and forecasting. So you think about there there can be use cases where the existing algorithms that we build into the platforms were not enough to detect a particular anomaly. So we actually again allow the application teams to then introduce their own algorithms. On top of it, right? So you, there's always that, you know, the platform is focused on the core, but if the platform is architected in a way that allows that extensibility, uh, then you got all the 500 other people who is going to be working for free for you to make the platform better, right? Versus yeah. they decided, you know what, the platform is not able to solve my problem, let me build my own.
1: Yeah, yeah. Before jumping into questions and continuing the interview, I just wanted to observe that a lot of what you described about the relationship between the platform team and the application team would equally apply between your team and the business team that you serve, but just from the other direction. Do you apply the same kind of philosophy in that relationship?
2: Yeah, that's a really good uh, meta observation, absolutely. I I think the, the part that I've always seen of organizations, how to help organization to be successful, is again, for them to feel like they are really not working against each other. They are working towards the same goal, right? Once the folks really internalize, our goal is the same, is to make this successful. Then like everything just fall together. So I agree. I think that's a really good observation.
1: Interesting question on this topic from Thomas in, the, in Q&A about avoiding quote unquote hero syndrome. You, you talked about kind of engineers always wanting to build it themselves. That's maybe related to this idea of hero syndrome, but the team that kind of wants to be the team to to build the platform and LinkedIn's maybe a little bit beyond this because you've got established teams that own platform. But have you seen early on where a new technology or idea comes around and different teams are kind of vying to be the one who builds and owns the official thing?
2: I would say that I, first of all, I, I think it's, uh, was it Tom who was, uh, uh, yeah, Thomas made that comment. I, I, I feel very strongly agree with you that like you're avoiding the hero syndrome. And I, there was once I heard somebody saying that, you know, in terms of which kind of talent they, like they hire when they interview, what matters the most to them? That was like a startup founder. And his comment is like, I'm looking for somebody who has a high IQ over ego ratio. <laughs> <laughs> so so the, the fact that like, you know, I, and I think sometimes ego can really get in the way of the border picture. So at LinkedIn, you know, maybe in the really early days when LinkedIn was kind of growing through a growth pain, when we had multiple teams, multiple data teams in various different parts of the company, right? Like. It was literally like, so uh, I, I'm going to take just one sentence to describe LinkedIn a little bit. So organizationally, LinkedIn is functionally organized, right? So we have engineering team that reports to head of engineering. We have product reporting to head of product. We have like the finance team report to our new CFO and like and then all of them then report up to the CEO. And back then, when well, I remember that when I first joined LinkedIn uh, eight years ago, we literally had a data team in uh, engineering which I am in, part uh, like, and then we also have a data team that is reporting into product. We also have a a data team that reports into our CFO. So you can kind of see that, sure, I think in the early days, uh, it took a lot more effort to align, making sure that, you know, we avoid that payroll syndrome and then actually all come together and building the right things all together. But I think nowadays, it's uh, simpler, it's easier, just because also the company is getting a lot more mature and from organizational standpoint as well.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Let's talk about some of the specific areas that your team operates and, and kind of has built out capability. One of those is experimentation. Can you talk a little bit about experimentation, why it's so important at LinkedIn and some of the things that you've done there?
2: Absolutely. So, Experimentation, I, I know sometimes that term gets used in various different ways, you, you know, uh, but I think that here you're particularly referring to sort of this com- randomized control experiment like A-B testing, uh, That that's also kind of another common term that people use. So why is it important? Um, I, I'm, I'm actually going to first use a, a story to, like, especially I know a lot of folks in the audience are MA, ML engineers, you, you develop a lot of models. Um when I first joined Ding almost eight years ago, and, and like a couple months after I joined the company, I was pulled in into this discussion. And at the time, LinkedIn, just a little backdrop, uh, like we, we didn't really have an experimentation platform, like, you know, running experiment was a little bit of spotty, like depending on like who you are, like, you know, whether you wanted to do it or not, like then you kind of, you know, so it so wasn't, wasn't a common practice in terms of our product development at all at the time. And so I was put into this discussion. Uh, the discussion was that there was an experiment that was run on uh, launching a new um, machine learning model eight years ago. Like LinkedIn wasn't that sophisticated when it comes to machine using machine learning in product development. Yeah. So think about you know the bar was low, and then you got that model that that was launched that was like amazing, right? Like you know you you looking at the the numbers coming from experiments, it was just like shockingly. Amazingly good <laughs> result. Mm-hmm. And so the team went ahead and launched it. you know back then LinkedIn was still a uh, independent well it's still a um, standalone company. we were not part of Microsoft. so so all these uh, you know people watching those very closely because that if you have a, a 10% lift on revenue, that's huge in terms of what translates into our financial numbers and then that goes into our stock price and all of that right So our finance team came and then they looked me at it like, wait, wait a minute you launched this thing but i'm i'm watching the numbers in terms of our revenue but i did not see a tick i did not see <laughs> i in my time series like i did not see that there is a gain in our numbers like like that's not real <laughs> that's not real so so what we had to do was we actually had to ramp down that experiment literally like you think about like you know you got this wonderful feature we have to ramp it down reverse it to actually then we saw in that time boom you can you can have a drop right to to actually make everybody believe this is actually a great thing that we are launching <laughs> that we're building so so now think about fast forward <laughs> to today uh i mean ding ding we we at every single given time we have about 500 experiments that's running um, and that ranges not just from uh, our algorithm and uh, improvements but also is pretty much every single product launch every single change that we're making we actually have it go through every test because that's the way that we understand how, how our members how our users are actually reacting and um, to the changes we're making do they like it do they not like it right and for every single launch we monitor like effectively like over a thousand uh, metrics, just so that we we get a sense uh, as much as we could of how this, is this a good feature or is this a bad feature? But not only that, internally, as in our process, it's like we are using those, every team are taking the results from their experiments and as the accounting of how how much they have contributed, right? Like, so, so it really... You know, think about that. Like you know, going from eight years ago, where we are, we were where we were. Well, for that one launch to today, it's a drastic improvement. But but like the benefit to the company is is tremendous, right? Because uh, think about over the time, over the years, so why did we decide to invest more in ML? Right? It's because we realized, wait, wait a minute. Like you know, the the it, it was a really good investment when we when we actually are focusing. Um, developing those algorithms that is actually able to bring a lot of upside to the business. So that, you know, translates into the right investment to the company, for the company. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, like, you know, there is also this culture that, again, going back to Thomas's question on this heroism, right? I think it's, maybe I was uh, a bit too harsh on ourselves. Like, I think heroism is, is everywhere. Like, we would have this, uh, maybe two product managers who are both thinking my idea of building this product is, is better, right? Like, so they, like nowadays, instead of arguing with each other, intuition against intuition, like, you know what? The conversation become very simple, right? Why don't I just test it, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? If I test it and it tells me that it's, it's a better thing, or maybe it tells me that my intuition is wrong, I will learn something, right? So it kind of really intrinsically changed this culture of maybe this heroism culture to this, learning culture to this really data informed culture.
1: So. Um, mm-hmm. you, know, you mentioned something in there that was really interesting uh, that you measure the contribution of folks on your team based on their results from this experimentation platform. And if I'm understanding you correctly, it makes a ton of sense. You don't want to measure folks just based on model results in a vacuum because who knows what those actually result in in production. But then in production, if, if a model's in production for you know a long period of time, you've got all other kind of models and things happening on the site that are impacting the long-term impact. And so tying their performance to the results in the experimentation platform is an interesting way to kind of isolate the impact of that one model. Is that the idea?
2: Yeah. So, so first of all, maybe just make a small correction. I, I, really, I don't mean as in, hey, when we are evaluating... A, a engineer, like you know, okay. a, how, how much like metrics did you gain? Like in in that in that sense, like I mean that I, I think a lot of time is thinking about in terms of the team, in terms of the area. Like we have a goal, we have a target, and that target, is, say, is to improve metrics X by five percent. And then like whether this whole team, when I say team, I actually more like area. We talk about how LinkedIn is cross-functionally um, collaborating together to mm-hmm. achieve that five percent. But did this area, did this line of business achieve that five percent gain uh, on that metric? Like you know, we we do keep a very close eye on like you know do, and then that is is measured against the experiments, right? Like we add up all the gains that we have from various different experiments that we have to see uh, do we hit that goal. But Mm -hmm. in terms of obviously, in terms of individual
1: performance,
2: that's that's there's a lot more that goes into. There's a
1: ton of issues there. The point was more that the experiment is an interesting way to isolate the real life impact of a model in a way that it's hard to do, you know, without exposing it to the real world. And when, once it's exposed to the real world for a long period of time, there are other factors that make it hard to isolate that particular model's impact.
2: Definitely, definitely. And and I always think about when we're building models, you know, we obviously, we have our utility functioning objective, and then you, you train your model, you really try to optimize that. And we do our offline replay also to see, hey, you know, is this model actually, we think that it's going to improve CTR, is it actually going to be improving CTR? But all these are just, I like to think about this as in, like, you know, my boss used to say, like intent versus impact, right? So mm-hmm. so you, your intent when you're building the model is to optimize, you know, towards that objective function, right? But did they really, right? That's where experimentation comes in because that is actually measuring the real impact of what your algorithm is
1: doing. hmm Another area that LinkedIn has invested quite a bit in is privacy, in particular differential privacy. Can you maybe give us a, an overview of your team's work in that
0: area?
2: Certainly, I, I think I think it should not be a surprise to everyone here that privacy is very very important, and, and I believe it's actually one of the the biggest disruption that we will have. What well, disruption always presents. Challenges and opportunity at the same time, but like, it you know thinking about a uh, from uh, you know the the regulation standpoint, which is you know the bare minimum that we we would hopefully forces many of us to start thinking about this area more seriously, like GDPR, CCPA, even thinking about you know Apple's IDFA, right? Like you know all, all of this, this. Uh, this is sort of where it, it's not about if anymore, right? It's it's about really when. <laughs> And obviously, from from consumer standpoint, it's it's a super super important area as well. And and for those of you who are intrinsically very driven by uh, solving really challenging problems, technology wise, like this is really also just an area that has tons of opportunities. So going back to your your question with regarding you know my team's work on differential privacy, uh, I want to first like maybe motivate a little bit because well, when we talk about Privacy or data privacy, uh, it's, it's a massive area, right? Like, you know, you're thinking about the, a, a, this is always, the, it's interesting of a, of, of a, a tussle between, you know, even just the, the, the term data and privacy, right? Data, think about what data does. We that's use right. data. We extract information from data. That's what, like, that's what data is for to data scientists and to ML folks. And then you got privacy. Privacy is really about how to prevent sharing information, right? Like, so you got both, you wanted to extract information, you got the other pool that you wanted to actually sort of stop sharing information. So it's it's kind of that that interesting uh, tussle between the two. And we talk about like, you can introduce privacy by, um, to some extent, right? Think about a lot of what GDPR is doing. You say, hey, you know, this PI information, like we should anonymize it, right? And then you got a lot of this algorithm that's there as well, right? Like K-anonymity, like, you know, all these that is able to do certain level or different levels of anonymization, but that's not enough, right? Because if you think about, there's a number of stats from uh, research several years ago that among a U.S. population, 87% of U.S. population, if you know their birthday zip code, and I think the other one is like uh, gender, uh, I, I think it's, yeah, birthday, gender, and zip code, then you will be able to know who they are, like you're gonna pin down who they are so so that just says how challenging it is to do privacy well so coming back to like differential privacy yeah it it really has become a more of a gold standard for how we preserve uh, privacy in, in data um, the concept of differential privacy is very simple right so what what it really says at a high level right is uh, what you can learn from the data should be. The same with or without a single person's information as part of it. Right. So, so, think about if you are learning a distribution from a huge data set, right. And let's say you, you learned about a distribution, it's a, it's a curve, right. And then mm-hmm. you take one member or one user's information out of that data set. And then you learn that you use the same algorithm, you learn another curve. These two curves should be very, very close to each other right? So this is where, what we call, like, should be, the difference should be epsilon, right? It should be, should be <laughs> very small. I, I had to throw the epsilon number there. And and then, so, so if you can, that's differential privacy guarantee. So if you have an algorithm that is able to meet that criteria, you know, it's guaranteed to have differential privacy. And it's, you know, then I'm not going to go into a lot of theoretical details, but then it comes with a lot of benefits. You can do the additive and all of this, right? So, so we have uh, very heavily invested into, and both, I mean, ultimately, like you know, we wanted to apply differential privacy in um, the the way that we use data across the board. We uh, we actually have uh, introduced it in our ads reporting and uh, think about like you know the reports that we give to our advertisers uh, that that we, we apply differential privacy on top of it when we share our data. And um, externally uh, to public, and um, like for example, what are the co- what are the companies that are hiring? Like what are the skills that's training, Like all this, we actually also apply differential privacy before we share the data externally, just so that we we can really make sure that we put our members and customer first, and and then so that there's no chance and that their information will be leaked or would be. Under this sort of, you know, there's a bunch of attacks that people can do to back engineer the individual information. And, and the under differential privacy, this just guarantees that there's no such a way that there's no such risk. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and so do you think the differential privacy is um, kind of ready for prime time for the, I don't know, average company? I mean, LinkedIn has been at the, the front of this and has spent a lot of time working on it. How ready do you think it is for kind of general consumption, and in particular, you know, there's differential privacy and differentially private machine learning, which is a whole other set of challenges.
2: Yeah, that's a great question. I, I want to say th- there. Are, I, I want to say it is ready. Uh, I'm going to be bold on that one, right? Like, uh, so, so first of all. We all know census actually, like census is using differential privacy mm-hmm. now. So, so if census is using it, I, I think you know <laughs> everyone else should be using it. <laughs> and, and on top of it, I do also think that there are uh, a lot of open sourced uh, capabilities that's out there already, that like Microsoft has this big open source differential privacy solutions out there. I think Google also has some. So, so even if you don't have like expertise in your own company, and to develop your own algorithm you can still get started by using the ones that's that's already open sourced right so i do think that every i would encourage everyone to to start getting into this field and on the other hand like you know are there challenges of building those solutions and applying those solutions yeah absolutely like i have to say like uh one, one challenge that we see very practical challenge is how do you think about you know, we talk about this difference between the two curves. You learn the epsilon, like how do you choose it, right? How do you choose epsilon? Because that is going to indicate the trade-off between the utility and the privacy, right? That you Like who, who's going to decide on cho- Like, what's the right epsilon for your company, for your application, right? So that's a very practical challenge that the company has to face. The second one is also the a lot of when, when people think about differential privacy, they think about, okay, you got data, you add a bunch of noise to it. And then you can forget about the rest, right? Like everybody knows how to add noise. Like you know, it's to data. <laughs> it's, uh,
1: That's the easy part.
2: It's the easy part. It's a easy part. You can choose a lot plus noise. You can choose Gaussian noise. You can just like, you know, all this. But, but the hard part is actually depends on the application, depends on the query. Like different differential privacy algorithms, even though that they could all meet the differential privacy criteria. So they are all differentially private uh, algorithms. But, they can actually have a different information loss in the process so let's say for example you have a you have a query if you apply the noise at the very uh, initial step top of the funnel right so you what, what when you go through this whole query what you get is, is there's very little information so if you turn a data into white noise then there's no point of having that data to begin with right so the the challenge of differential privacy is also there needs that sort of this expertise when when in, especially in some applications to come up mm-hmm. with the wide right algorithms that you can actually preserve privacy, but also preserve the utility of the data itself mm-hmm. as well.
1: Yeah, for more on this, I'd refer folks to the interview that I did the interview was just over a year ago at NeurIPS in Vancouver with Ryan Rogers at LinkedIn on the way that differential privacy was applied to this problem uh, that you call the top K problem. Uh, and we go into a ton of, of detail there. In our last few minutes, I'd love to hear about the some of the tools that and, and platforms that kind of give your team leverage at LinkedIn.
2: Well, I'm, I hope I made it bluntly obvious that I'm a big fan of platforms. <laughs> <in general. laughs> so, uh, you know, we have a actually a sister team uh, that to me uh, that they really focus on building a lot of the data platforms and um, for, again, not just my team, right? Like thinking about like the, the rest of the company uh, as well. So I would say a few of them that has been super critical. Uh, one uh, I've already mentioned about experimentation platform, right? Because that's really the more, the easier that you make the experimentation process to be, the more people is going to be using it. And then the more data-driven that the company will be. And then that would have a cascading impact in, in how we are investing as a company and the kind of people that you attract and all of that, right? So I think the experimentation platform. Um, and the second of all, uh, is certainly our machine learning platform. And uh, that, uh, you know, a platform that is able to both thinking about how to, you know, if I think about any field is it ha- how fast different fields has evolved over the past few years, like machine learning area is definitely that's like literally you you got every time, every day you open up, you know, a, a research journal, you you will see something new that some people has developed that works better than what happened, you know, yesterday. So thinking about the platform is building a way that is able to be extensible, that is able to evolve with the industry, with the field. So super critical of that as well. Like, and again, also, how, how do you seamlessly transition between online and offline? So a lot of really uh, good problems in that space. And certainly my team uses that uh, as well. And uh, the other platform I would say is our, uh, uh, like a platform that devoted to metadata, and search and discovery, right? So thinking about you have a lot of various different data constructs or data assets, right? And like when I, like a metric is a data construct, a model is a data construct, just any data set is a data construct, a feature that goes into the model is a data construct. And when you start to be really very data focused as a company, you got all these data constructs and data assets that lies around. And how can you make sure that they can be leveraged by many people. How can you make sure that, you know, if there are issues on them that we actually have a way to identify them? Like, so having this almost like a catalog of all these data assets in the core of many other applications is really, really important um, as well. Do
1: you know what you're referring to?
2: Uh, it's Data Hub. We call it data Hub. data
0: Hub. Okay. Yeah.
2: So, like, you know, you can also think about, like, how does the, all these data constructs relate to each other? Right. Mm-hmm. One big challenge that I'm sure for a lot of the data developers here is like, you know, you got you got a data, maybe that fits into your model or fits into some other, you know, things that you're doing. You have no idea where the data come from. <laughs> right. And then over time, this data may deteriorate, this data may change because of five steps ahead, like, you know, like in the chain, in the lineage that it is creating that problem. So having, again, like a tool, a platform that is able to provide in that lineage, it just really, uh, I, I cannot say, uh, I, I cannot understate how important that is. And then we also have a platform that is able to help us uh, do uh, anomaly detection, forecasting, and root cause analysis as well, right? When something goes wrong with the data, like what caused it? And then what, I mean, first of all, to be able to detect it, we, we know, for example, like, Models in like features can have a distribution shift for many reasons. I could have a bug in my product. All of a sudden, the telemetry, the tracking is off, and that fades into my model automatically. And then the model turned out to be not performing anywhere anymore. And like being able to monitor at every step of the funnel uh, is also obviously very important to model development, to to you know matrix development, all of that as well. And then since you mentioned Pino, I'm also gonna uh, you know. I'll touch on that one as well. Pinot is our distributed OLAP storage that uh, we have developed ourselves at LinkedIn and open sourced uh, several years ago. That is really able to provide scale of, I uh, me think about the scale of data that we operate at LinkedIn. Like, that is able to allow us to be able to both serve online use cases. Uh, for example, if you go to LinkedIn uh, on the site, a lot of the an- analytics that's on the page are powered by Pinot in the backend. And it allows us to do internally, uh, able to do uh, our OLAP uh, on, on it as well. So super powerful. And we talk about differential privacy. We also are able to build a Meteor on top of Pinot so that we can have all the use cases that's already in Pinot that then be able to easily onboard into the differential privacy uh, capability as well.
1: Awesome. Awesome. Well, We've covered a ton of ground in this conversation, but it's time to wrap up. Yeah, thanks so much for joining us this morning and sharing a bit about what you and your team are up to at LinkedIn.
2: Thank you so much for having me, and I really enjoyed that conversation.
1: Same here. Thanks,
0: y'all. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit TwimmelAI.com. Of course.